just in list format, the things that you love to do. The things that you love to do. How you would spend your time if it were just completely up to you. What would you give your attention to doing if money was never a consideration? What you're truly passionate about and how you would pursue it if others' opinions didn't matter. All right? So take, uh, again, 90 seconds, two minutes, and, uh, and write a little list right there. All right, hang on to that list. We're going to come back to it in a minute. But uh, let me set up the next couple of weeks. For the next three weeks, we're planning to explore a few of God's many promises. So not all of God's promise, but just a few of the promises we see in Scripture. But to get at those promises, to maybe more fully understand what those promises are communicating to us, we're going to look at some of the false narratives that we believe have infiltrated Christian culture. Lies that we believe, either consciously or subconsciously, that can skew our picture of what a vibrant, healthy faith in Christ might look like. So this morning, what we're going to wrestle with is this lie or this idea that I believe many of us have internalized, that God doesn't care about the same things I care about. God doesn't care about the same things I care about. Put in another way, maybe a more developed or a nuanced way uh, of belief that may have come from this is this. Because of who he is, God only cares about spiritual things. Therefore, the things I'm passionate about do not align with his will. Because of who he is, God can only truly care about spiritual things. And because the things I care about may not be spiritual in nature, then I'm outside of his will. So take a look back at your list now and just ask yourself internally this question. How many of those things on your list would be spiritual in nature? You don't have to answer out loud, but just scan through it real quick. I did this exercise, and it wasn't until I got into the teens on my list that I realized or found an overtly spiritual practice that made its way onto my list. So in a world where it's easy to believe that God only cares about truly spiritual things, our lists can become concerning when we look at them. They can create tension. They can create guilt. But not only our lists, think about all of the ways that we spend time throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the months, and the years. Things like doing dishes, driving to and from work, watching your kids play soccer, folding laundry, etc., etc., etc. The reality of most of our lives is far more time spent on the mundane than it is on the spiritual. So this narrative, if we were to believe it, creates a significant separation between our holy acts, spiritual acts, and everything else that we do in our life. It begins to divide the times between when we feel like Christians and times where we're just plain ordinary folks doing ordinary things. I believe this leads to hierarchies in community, right? We set apart people that we then believe are truly spiritual, and we 
designate those people based on the volume of time that they spend doing spiritual things. And then there are the rest of us that maybe don't spend as much time. And we have a pedestal for those at the top of the hierarchy. We marvel at how they spend their time early morning prayer and with study. The fact that they only read Christian nonfiction books and watch only movies with Kirk Cameron. We marvel at the fact that they eagerly serve different nonprofits and love volunteering at every single chance they get. The fact that they attend or lead multiple Bible study groups, that they spend their vacation time, their precious vacation time on mission trips, that they certainly would never miss a Sunday service except for the week that they're on that mission trip, which in that case, they certainly found a church to attend in the country that they're in. We place these people on a pedestal saying that clearly they have to be closer to God because of the volume and the amount of spiritual things with which they do. Here's the problem with this narrative, with this lie. It drives the assumption that God is only really happy with these types of folks. While the rest of us, myself included, based on my list, based on how I spend the majority of my time, have to wrestle with the internal guilt of never quite measuring up. And so we go back to our list, to the myriad of things that we are passionate about and enjoy spending our time doing and conclude that because God doesn't care about the things we care about, the golf and the food and travel and fiction and fishing and board games and skiing and backpacking and exercise and coffee and brewing beer and training for triathlons and all of those things, because those things are secular things, they must be outside of God's will. And therefore, we are second-rate Christians for pursuing them, for being passionate about them, for enjoying them, for spending our time doing them. This false belief is centered in the idea of dualism. Dualism propagates that there is a sacred, secular divide, that things can be only good or bad, religious or worldly, profane or holy, temporal or eternal, that all of life is and its decisions are in fact binary, that things are divided and in a cosmic battle for supremacy and too often we stand on the wrong side. A.W. Tozer says this, and this is a little bit of a, a longer quote, but I think it uh, fits really, really well with this idea. He says, we come unconsciously to recognize two sets of actions. The first are performed with a feeling of satisfaction and a firm assurance that they are pleasing to God. These are the sacred acts, and they are usually thought to be prayer and Bible reading, hymn singing, church attendance, and such other acts as spring directly from faith. They may be known by the fact that they have no direct relation to this world and would have no meaning except as faith shows us another world. Over against these sacred acts are the secular ones. They include all of the ordinary activities of life with which we share with the sons and daughters of Adam, eating, sleeping, working, looking after the need of the body and performing our dull, our dull and prosaic duties here on earth. 
These we often do reluctantly and with many misgivings, often apologizing to God for what we consider a waste of time and strength. The upshot of this is that, they are, is that we are uneasy most of the time. We go about our common tasks with a feeling of deep frustration, telling ourselves pensively that there's a better day coming when we shall slough off this earthly shell and be bothered no more with the affairs of the world. I think Tozer gets at the tension or the guilt that many of us feel. In this narrative of the world, it's easy to evaluate our mundane tasks, look at our lists, and quickly categorize each individual thing and internally create ledgers of time and energy spent seeking to prove ourselves in front and before God. This manufactures kind of a a quid pro quo faith where we do just enough spiritual stuff to stay on the right side of that cosmic battle, to justify our mundane stuff that we have to do and the stuff we actually enjoy doing, which we may think is secular. But a perspective of God that holds he only honors and is concerned about spiritual things, I believe, is far too small. A narrative that we have to constantly work to achieve a sacred, secular balance is inconsistent with the gospel story. Tozer, following this long quote that I just read, concludes this, the sacred, secular antithesis has no foundation in the New Testament. Without a doubt, a more perfect understanding of Christian truth will deliver us from it. That more perfect understanding is found, I believe, in the incarnation. In taking the form of a baby and living as one of us, Jesus puts to death this idea of dualism. The sacred fully inhabiting the world is the evidence and promise that nothing, absolutely nothing, is beyond the reach of the holy. That there is no longer spiritual and non-spiritual. In creation and through incarnational dwelling, all of life can be and is spiritual in nature. Nothing sets outside of God's sovereignty. Nothing is irredeemable. Everything we pursue can be done in and through the power of Christ. So the real answer to the question I asked a minute ago of how many items on your list are spiritual, the answer is all of them. All of those things are spiritual because they fall under the dominion of Christ. Richard Rohr says, only contemplative, non-dual consciousness is capable of seeing things like this without also being negative or self-righteous. Once you can clear away the web of illusion, you will be able to see that every created thing is still made in the image of God. Every being has the divine DNA or essence, that there is no profane place, person, or creature. We can find the sacred in seemingly secular human endeavors like sex, food, work, economics, and politics. When we view the world around and through the illusion of dualism, one of the unavoidable pitfalls is the created reality that there are times when we are Christians and there are times when we are not. Times when we are spiritual, times when we are not. 
this line of thinking assumes that there are things outside of the dominion of Christ, that life can be sustained outside of God. Colossians 1, 15 through 23 would say otherwise. This is what Paul says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I of which, uh, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. For him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created for and by him. In him all things hold together. Through him all things will be reconciled. You are reconciled to God through faith. It seems pretty clear what Paul is communicating here. There is nothing outside of Christ. These are the promises of God, and they can set us free from the exhausting work of constantly justifying what we love, of carrying the guilt of our pursuits, of feeling paralyzed by the seemingly mundane tasks of our days. The preeminence of Christ and the indwelling reality of the incarnation is the the theological groundwork for something called holism, that our thoughts and actions, that our very lives are spiritually whole in and through Christ. They are not divided into sacred and secular. Holism moves us to an understanding that the entirety of our lives is a spiritual exercise, that everything we spend our time doing and everything we say is taking place within the emerging kingdom of God, that the essence of everything we do is connected to Christ who lives within us. This means being at church is no more spiritual than playing the back nine at Esmeralda. That having your coffee with a high school friend is really no different than having coffee with a pastor of a local church. That watching a movie with your kids can be just as sacred as leading a Bible study. All of these things are important because they're all under the dominion of Christ who has set us free. The truth of this reality sets us free to become whole people, no longer bearing the weight of a divided and segmented experiment 
experience. We are part of the whole. Christ has made us this way. This gives us purpose to approach and to live into things differently. To approach each of those items on your list in a new and a different way. To recognize God amidst the mundane tasks with a freedom knowing that God is reconciling all things to himself and that he is using you, he is using me to do that work. That we are needed in all spaces and in all activities to bring God's joy, to bring God's love. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We are freed to be whole people, to pursue our God-given passions with the assurance that if we choose, we can bring him glory in those things. That should be a freeing message. I started this talk this morning with this false dualistic idea that God doesn't care about the things that we maybe care about. God doesn't care about the things that we love, that we are passionate about. I believe many of us have believed this to be true, that we have viewed our decisions and actions through a binary lens that some of the things I do are Christian and some of the things I do are not. But God is far too big to be controlled by our dualistic idea, far too grand to be contained in this narrative. The truth really is that God doesn't care nearly as much about the things you do as he does how you do them. The scripture assures us that all of life is spiritual, that the sacred has overtaken everything. So now we must live into things in a certain way, in the way that God has called us to. Just because you pray or study for an hour every day doesn't mean you are closer to God than those who study or pray for 30 minutes a day. You can do just as much good in a volunteer position at a nonprofit than you can working your regular nine to five job. God is not nearly as concerned with your monthly church attendance as he is how you're living into community throughout the week how you express hospitality, how you see his beauty in creation, how you honor people with your words and with your actions. God is concerned far more with the means than he is the end. God is concerned with how you live into those things on your list far more than he is whether you pursue them or not. If you are passionate about something, chase after it knowing that you can bring glory to God in that way. No longer feeling the guilt that what you're doing might be culturally seen as secular. Rohr says this, it's a continuation of the quote I read a little bit earlier. It's not that the sacred is over here and the profane over there. Everything is profane if you live on the surface of it, and everything is sacred if you go to the depth of it. Jesus lived and loved the depths of things, as all mystics do. The Christian life is not part of who you are. 
There is not a part of you that is spiritual and parts of you that are not. You are whole in Christ. And therefore, our life and actions can and should be whole in Christ. Seek the depth in all things that you do. Avail yourself to the movement of the Holy Spirit and pursue your passions freely, knowing that they can bring glory to God, trusting in the promises that all things were created for him and by him, and he is calling us to live into a fully sacred and eternal existence. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray this morning as the uh, band comes up. My encouragement to you uh, through prayer and, and as we worship this morning, recognizing God has given us the ability to live a sacred life in all that we do, not just for the hour and a half that we're here on Sunday mornings, but as we drive from here, as we go about the rest of our day, as we walk into the rest of this week, God is calling us into something far, far greater than a divided experience of some things are spiritual and some things are not. Let me pray. God, we are a people that desires to recognize just how grand and how big you are. We are a people that desires to live a life that is fully sacred, understanding that all things that we do can come from a place of you working through us. That you have never desired us to feel the guilt or weight or shame of the passions that you have given us the things that we enjoy doing, but you have freed us to pursue them knowing that you live within us, that you are the very sustainer of our lives. And for that, we exalt you. And for that, we thank you. Be with us this morning as we worship God, but be with us as we leave this building and we go and be your church in the world, in all of the different areas of life, whether they're areas of our passion or just the mundane aspects. May we bring your joy and your love and your purpose into those things. We pray this in the mighty and glorious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.